Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm Joey Lovato, the Indie's multimedia editor. On this week's episode, I sit down with education reporter Jackie Valley to talk about all of the commotion during the first few weeks of the school year in Clark County, where teachers were threatening to strike, union leaders met with the governor and the superintendent, and a deal was finally reached. Jackie will explain the rest. Later, I chat with our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, about what Senator Jackie Rosen and Catherine Cortez Masto have been up to while they're on their August recess, including an update on the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, which Cortez Masto chairs, and everyone's favorite subject here in Nevada, Yucca Mountain. Before we get into all that, here are a few headlines from this week, all of which were broadcast by our partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. From Riley Snyder, Bucking a national trend of rising electric prices, Nevada power prices decreased by 14.5% between 2009 and 2018. That's according to a new study by S&P Global Market Intelligence. It's the largest such decrease of any state in the country over the 10-year time period. And thanks to a large part of the declining cost of natural gas, which makes up nearly 70% of the state's total electric generation. Nevada's reliance on natural gas was boosted by the resource's plummeting cost, with the price of natural gas being halved since 2009. Envy Energy, the primary electric utility for Reno and Las Vegas, owns and operates 10 natural gas plants in Nevada. Officials with Reno-based Unified Collective One may soon ask the state that it not be considered as a public utility so that the company may be more flexible in the creation of its Renew Geo project. In a set of technical details submitted to the Public Utilities Commission, the company has revealed that it is working to create a unique and proprietary renewable energy generation project that will use solar thermal heat to augment geothermal energy production. The concept of renewable geothermal is designed to meld geothermal energy with large-scale solar, essentially using created solar power and storing it by pumping heat into old or unused geothermal wells where it can then be used on a controlled regular basis to produce carbon-free renewable energy. Earlier this year, the company announced that it had secured leases on two existing geothermal production wells in Churchill County. From Jackie Valley, Despite a settlement between the Clark County School District and the Clark County Education Association, the Nevada Republican Party released a televised ad yesterday attacking Governor Steve Sislak and Senate Majority Leader Nicole Cannizzaro for what the party asserts is their untruthfulness in the labor dispute. The 30-second ad, called Let Them Down, claims legislative leaders knew about funding woes in the state's largest school district during the 2019 legislative session despite assertions from the Democrats that they didn't know about the issues. In a statement, a spokesperson from the Nevada Republican Party says Cannizzaro and Sisolak played a significant role in crafting the state's budget, and instead of taking responsibility for the lack of funds, they chose to lie about it. Sisolak and Cannizzaro lambasted the school district last week, saying money needed for the teacher raises wasn't brought to their attention until after the legislative session had ended. Clark County Superintendent Jesus Jara has said his lobbyists in Carson City were aware of the funding needs during the session. For KUNR News, I'm Joey Lovato with the Nevada Independent. All right, now on to my chat with education reporter Jackie Valley. All right, hey Jackie, hello from Reno. We are uh, we're in separate parts of the state, but um, you know, with the with the magic of modern technology, we can uh, we can hear each other. <laughs> so, can you kind of explain to me what's been going on down in Clark County right now? You know, I know there's a lot that's been that's been happening. 
So school started uh, Monday, August 12th. And by the end of that week on Friday, August 16th, the Clark County School District had proposed a contract offer to the Clark County Education Association. And that's uh, the local teachers union. That's the collective bargaining body down here. The offer in included the 3% cost of living raises that the governor had promised, as well as uh, 2% step raises, which are essentially seniority increases uh, based on length of employment. And it also included the district contributing more to uh, health insurance premiums for employees. But the union promptly rejected that offer, saying it didn't go far enough because it didn't include another particular kind of raise, and that is a so-called column advancement. Uh, which really means it's a raise tied to teachers completing professional development plans. So uh, that basically triggered a lot of drama between then and now. There were multiple, multiple negotiation sessions and uh, really no sense of resolution. And what had happened in the meantime was that the Clark County Education Association had been threatening to strike really since the spring. Originally, the union was threatening to strike if the legislature didn't appropriate enough money to improve education. And then we kind of made it through signed die without uh, calls for a strike. Um, but then the Clark County School District was making some budget cuts. And so then there was another um, strike threat if any of the cuts hit the classroom directly. So this was sort of the third go around of, of the threat per se. Um, and this time it was triggered because of the column raises not being included in the offer. So uh, it reinvigorated all of that, uh, really angered educators. And, you know, you have to look at it from their perspective. They put in those of that those of the teachers or those teachers who were eligible put in about 675 hours of outside time into doing these professional development plans to get their raise. And then they were being told that, you know, they weren't going to get it through this contract. So naturally, it uh, angered a lot of folks. Um, interestingly, like both teachers eligible and those who weren't, um, I was told that many were really just standing in solidarity with their colleagues who were owed the raises. Um, there were fears that if this didn't go through, that it would lead to a mass exodus of teachers in the district, which is already struggling with the shortage as it stands. And people were worried that it would just lead to overall worse morale among the ranks. So there was a lot of tension back and forth the past 12 days. It really hit its peak at a school board meeting last Thursday. There was a rally outside Liberty High School. Before the meeting, um, it brought hundreds and hundreds of teachers to that school site. I think the union estimated it was over 1,000. But inside the actual auditorium, it was packed, standing room only for the school board meeting. And uh, just chance of honor our contract, um, that type of thing going on. And ultimately, the trustees cut it short after public comment because it became kind of an unstable environment and there were some threats thrown around. So it really wasn't looking good. It looked like we were inching ever closer to a strike on September 10th, which is the date that the union had set for the strike to begin. Now, in the meantime, the Clark County School District was trying to ward off the strike through uh, legal means. Um, they filed a motion in Clark County District Court to seek injunctive relief. Because strikes are technically illegal in Nevada. So, you know, the union could have been fined, participating teachers could have been disciplined or fired. But, you know, truthfully, none of that really seemed to matter to the folks who were ready to go about it. I think they considered it, I don't know, more of a threat that they would be fired more than anything else. And do, do you think that there would have been like any retribution if they did strike? 
that's hard to say. You know, we already have more than 700 vacancies down here. So, you know, realistically, are you going to get rid of hundreds of more teachers? Then what do you do at that point? Um, and I think that's kind of how everyone felt like, okay, what are you going to do? But, you know, nevertheless, it would have caused a huge headache for the district, you know, with those teachers being absent. Uh, what do parents do with their kids if all the schools are shut down, et cetera, et cetera. There was question of how many teachers would actually participate. The union was confident that they'd get a large number of folks out. But, you know, if you talk to individual teachers, there was definitely some hesitation. They were certainly um, in favor of getting the raises and attending the rallies. But some of them expressed hesitation to participate in a strike either for financial reasons or just fear of retribution within the district, all of the above. Um, so, yeah, so it was definitely a, a dicey time in the school district. The day after the, the fiery school board meeting, uh, the governor and Democratic leadership um, called a press conference down in Las Vegas and basically ripped into the school district saying that, you know, they should have accounted for this column pay raise and their legislative funding requests um, and that it was kind of their fault it had gotten to this point. So just a lot of, uh, it was a tangled mess, basically. <laughs> um, so, yeah. you know, we entered this week uh, with them agreeing to mediation, but then still continuing with these negotiations. So finally, as of around 4 p.m. yesterday, uh, it was announced that they had reached a tentative agreement. And so it was quite the scene at uh, school district headquarters. Uh, we got there around 4.30, 4.45, and it was a mass of media, everyone following this unfolding saga over the past 12 days. Um, and I have to say, it was an interesting press conference in that they, all the leaders, you know, Governor Steve Sisolak was there, Clark County Superintendent Jesus Jara, as well as uh, John Velardita, the executive director of the teachers' union. They were there, some legislative leaders, other union members, uh, school trustees, the, the whole gamut of folks. Um, and they really started by saying, thank you, we're so glad this ended, blah, blah, blah. But they didn't really dig into the details of what they actually agreed to, so that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, you know, they came to a compromise with those column increases. Everything the district had originally proposed, the 3% cost of living raise, the 2% seniority raise, and the health care contribution, all of that stayed. But the union was victorious in getting those column pay raises for their teachers. Now the was there was there anything that they didn't get well, that they wanted? Well, so the caveat is that the background of this whole column raising was that it's tied to what's called the professional growth system, and that dates back to negotiations in 2015 um, when the union and school district decided to form this this new system where teachers could do a variety of things: professional development, uh, graduate level courses, mentoring, you know, tutoring, all sorts of different activities tied to professional growth that if they completed so many hours, they would get this $5,400 pay raise. There was speculation that Superintendent Jara wants to get rid of that system and completely go towards something that's more of a performance-based system. So in other words, you get a raise if you increase student achievement. Jara didn't totally acknowledge that was his thinking, but he did say that he wanted to retool it and that it needed to be more linked to student achievement. So what that ultimately looks like, I'm not sure. But in the end, um, the union district agreed that they would look at this professional growth system and maybe tweak it going forward. But they're not getting rid of it, per se. So that remains to be seen. So no strike on the 10th. 
So no strike on the 10th. That has been called off. They suspended operations and are supposedly focusing on what's happening in the classroom and getting back to normal. So, so what what do you see happening moving forward now? Is it anything going to change, or are they still going to be trying to negotiate, or or is this kind of settled? So, what we have right now is a tentative agreement. It's for the 2019-2020 school year, as well as the 2020-2021 school year. Um, that still needs to be approved by the union's executive board and the school board of trustees. So, once those two things happen, probably within the next couple of weeks. Um, then it will trigger the, the raises being doled out. Um, how soon that could happen, I'm not sure, but it'll be uh, retroactive to the beginning of this contract year for teachers. Um, as for like the larger, broader theme of education in Nevada, you know, the governor was pretty frank yesterday and said that he's recommitted to improving education in the state and that he refuses to back down from the challenge that this is really only the beginning initial step. Um, you know, we have a new funding formula that's sort of in development will be rolled out. Obviously, there's still calls for more funding from the state level. So it's definitely not over. And I think, if anything, yesterday showed that, okay, here was one small step, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Did you did you ever talk to any students during, during all of this uh, commotion? Did, was there a reaction from them at all? So interestingly, uh, yesterday there was this video on uh, that, I think it was that social media uh, channel called TikTok that a student uh, basically was calling for a strike in solidarity with teachers that would happen on September 5th. That went viral. <laughs> so, you know, you have to wonder how much did that play into all of a sudden everyone coming to a compromise at the negotiation table because, you know, teachers were upset. Parents were obviously getting upset because this could potentially alter their work schedules and just their normal daily plans. Um, but now you have te- or students saying, hey, this isn't fair. Let's get our teachers what they deserve. And, you know, if not, we're going to walk out of the classroom, too. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned earlier that there were 700 vacancies. Is that causing a lot of tension with teachers in the school district? I mean, do you think that that may have led to, maybe not led to the strike, but kind of added fuel to the fire? I think so. I mean, that's not a new phenomenon down here. Um, the Clark County School District always starts with hundreds of vacancies at the beginning of each year, unfortunately. That has gone up this year, though. So, you know, if you were looking at 700 vacancies and then teachers potentially being angry enough to quit and try to find jobs elsewhere, maybe go to charters or other states. Yeah, that number could rise. And so I think that was, it's always in the background, but it definitely got brought to the forefront more with these uh, contract negotiations. Okay. And then how much do you think, how much is this going to cost the the state? So um, the school district CFO gave a rundown of the money yesterday. He said it would cost the district about $37 million for the 3% cost of living pay raises, which go to all teachers, um, $27 million each year for the 2% seniority raises for qualifying teachers, uh, $4.6 million each year for the health care contribution. Um, what's up in the air is how much it will cost for the column pay raises. Uh, that's because they have to verify how many teachers are actually eligible. Uh, the union has said that about 2,500 teachers have submitted their documentation saying that they've completed their um, professional development plans or professional growth plans, but that must be verified. So once those are verified, we'll have the full number who are eligible for that roughly 5,400 raise. Um, that number will probably go down a little bit, though, because there's going to be you know, little things that maybe slipped through the cracks that teachers didn't realize that maybe they don't have quite enough uh, 
contact hours as part of their growth plan. So that remains to be seen, but the district is estimating that it'll cost about anywhere from between 11 million to 15 million this year to pay out those raises. And all of that money is coming from within the school district? The school district, the, the state had appropriated funding you know, at the end of the legislative session. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yes, yeah, there wasn't any special additional appropriation from the state coming for this. Sure, so they're gonna have to find ways to move money around to make those raises happen. Yeah, and that was an interesting part of the press conference yesterday because the superintendent sort of glossed over that aspect of this in terms of where the money was coming because the district, you know, at least early on in these negotiations, kept saying, well, we can't afford to give these raises, that's why they weren't included. The union was saying, that's not so, you have the money, find it, give it to us. Ultimately, they said, you know, or Superintendent Jaris said, you know, we weren't lying, we didn't have the money, but our projections are looking a little bit more positive. Um, they had already, he'd already made a, a six, I think it was a 6.5 million cut to his central office in the middle of the summer. So that is probably some of that money. You know, the, the district yesterday afternoon after the press conference released a separate statement saying that they're Projections have been trending positively with improvements in interest earnings, uh, some frozen central office positions, and then the reallocation of certain positions from the district's operating budget to state and federal grants. So it's going to be a hodgepodge of money shuffled from various places to provide these raises going forward. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much for uh, for being on the podcast this week, Jackie, and uh, hopefully uh, the school district gets everything sorted out. Thank you so much. Good chatting. All right, so we are here with uh, our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez. This is your uh, your first time on the podcast. How's it going? It's uh, it's hot in Washington. <laughs> yeah, it's hot. It's hot in Reno too. But I think you guys probably have a little more humidity than us. Yes, one thousand <laughs> percent. So, yeah, we, we want to hear a little bit about, you know, our, our representatives over in D.C. Uh, can you tell us what, what are the senses you're getting from from our two, our Cortez Masto and Rosen right now? How are they looking? Well, uh, they're spending a lot of time right now in, in the state because it's re- their recess right now. But uh, the, the Cortez Masto is uh, head of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, which is uh, basically the campaign arm of the Senate Democrats. And, uh, and she just had a victory with Governor Hickenlooper from Colorado announcing he's going to drop out of the, the presidential race and run for Senate in Colorado, which is a vulnerable, a possible pickup opportunity for the Senate. And, uh, and, and she, uh, she's, I'm sure she's very happy about that. When, when, when you say it's a victory for them, why, why is it a victory? Because it uh, allows them to put their strongest candidate out there. He's, a, he's won statewide because he's, he's been governor of Colorado. And uh, that that yeah. that's uh, as good as being a senator, as good, or good as running for for senate because it's a statewide position, and yeah. so it lo- it allows the the Democrats to put a very competitive candidate uh, against Cory Gardner, who's a very vulnerable incumbent right now, who's trying to straddle you know the the uh, the president's push on immigration and on guns and so forth uh, with a, a very moderate purple state. Okay. And and Cortez Masto, she is running the DSCC, or that's right. She's the chairman of the DSCC, she, which so she helps basically fundraise. She helps recruit candidates. It's basically the big job, the, the jobs there. 
but but also the party leaders, the caucus leaders are are, are taking an increasingly bigger role in that. So it's it's uh, between the two of them, they 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 run the the operation. How long has she been uh, running the DSCC? This is her first year. That's right, and she's the first Latina to do it, and she. It's it's kind of a thankless job because you, uh, you you get all the blame if you don't flip the Senate and you get all but you get all the praise if you do. I know that uh, as part of the deal for her doing it, I know she got a seat on the Senate Finance Committee, which is a big deal for the state to have someone on that. Senator Heller was a member of that committee and uh, he was defeated. And she uh, because she would agree to do this uh, DSCC post, she got a seat on the Finance Committee, which is a, which is a big deal. What does it What does it mean for Nevada that she has this DSCC post? Does it affect the state at all, or is it more of a more of a Democratic Party? It's more of a Democratic Party thing. It's a way for her to build uh, goodwill with the, the the leadership and and her colleagues in the Senate. It helps her. You know, she she's going to have she had won a close Senate race last time around, and she's up in twenty twenty two, and it'll help her. Uh, you know, build a national network of fundraisers. She'll meet important people and important groups, and uh, and and have build that relationship, which she'll carry, which will carry over into her uh, re-election cycle as well. So, two of the big things that the DSCC does is fundraising and recruitment for the Democratic Party. How, what have they been doing, and how is Cortez Masto kind of leading that that charge? Well, on, on fundraising, uh, the most recent filing uh, was for July. And they outraised the their the rival, the National Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, by five hundred thousand dollars. That's been uh they they've been very close uh, from month to month for the most part. Uh, in June, the DSCC raised five point five million, and the NRSC raised five point seven million. So they they've been relatively close. But you know, since the beginning of the year, the the DSCC has only raised thirty three point thirty three million compared to the NRSC's thirty nine million. So they they like the where the trend where this is going and they're happy with that and uh but uh you know, they're, they're still a little short on fundraising it's 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 almost negligible and that has to do i think a little bit with the fact that the, if you look at the map for democrats because this the whole goal of of this DSEC is to get more candidates to to uh win victories in the senate and, become, and turn the senate uh, majority for the democrats so if you look at the map for democrats uh it's it's the case that sometimes fundraising depends on how much how many incumbents you have, uh, how many seats you're defending, and stuff like that. And uh, the, the that seems to be the case now because uh, the current for the 2020 cycle, uh, Republicans are defending 22 seats, and that while the Democrats have uh, just 12 incumbents up for re-election, uh, a lot of the Republican-held seats are not vulnerable seats. So while the most vulnerable seat last cycle happened to be Senator Dean Heller in Nevada. Uh, this cycle, uh, the 2020 cycle, it is Senator Doug Jones, a Democrat from Alabama, who won AG Jeff Sessions' seat uh, after he was tapped by the president to become attorney general. So while Republicans are defending more seats, the seat most likely to flip is a Democratic seat, the, that age, that uh, Jones seat. Democrats currently control 47 seats, and they need to unseat three Republicans to take control of the Senate if they win the presidency. If they don't win the okay. presidency, they'll need four seats because uh, the VP will be that 50-50 situation. He'd be the tiebreaker. And we also talked about how the other big thing that the SEC does is recruitment and how Hickenlooper was a big get for them. But what else is going on there in recruitment? Well, the most uh, that's a, a change in a tone or a change in uh, the story there because uh, they've had some notable recruitment misses. And that, that includes uh, Stacey Abrams, who was a vaunted candidate to run for Senate in Georgia, 
after failing to win the 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 seat uh, the governor's race in Georgia, they they were hoping that she would run for Senate, but she's not uh, interested in doing that. And then you have some of the presidential candidates who uh, who might be better candidates for the Senate. That includes Steve Bullock from Montana, the governor of Montana, Beto O'Rourke in Montana. I'm sorry, in Texas. And they might be better Senate candidates. And so, but I guess if you look at what the the seats that um, the DSCC is targeting, they don't include really Montana, which is a very red state, and Texas, which is also a very red state. They include more like Colorado, like Senator Hicken, uh, like uh, Governor Hickenlooper, which was a, again a big deal for them. But they also have they're looking at Iowa, and they're looking at North Carolina, they're looking at Arizona, and Maine. So the the so would would they need uh, four seats in a, in a scenario where they don't win the presidency? They look at the Arizona has uh, Mark Kelly, which is a who's an astronaut who's pretty big named, and he's raising a lot of money, and he's going to take on Martha McSally. It's going to be a big a big uh, a big contest. Colorado now is a big deal. Maine, where where Senator Susan Collins has been uh, the Republican there, is is really taking a lot of heat and over the president's a lot of her his rhetoric is not playing well in Maine. North Carolina could be the same uh, with uh, Senator Tom Tillis there. And uh, they ha- well, they haven't had huge. They haven't convinced huge people with big name recognition like like Higginlooper in those states. They do have some some good candidates, or they have some interesting candidates, I should say. In uh, in Maine, for example, they have the Speaker of the House there, the State House. In North Carolina, they have a, a former state senator running there. So it's it's they they while they uh, missed out on some of their top tier candidates they do have some uh, they're trying to make a, a a case for the the people that they have gotten to run yeah it's it's almost it sounds like we're talking sports almost you know what are the the, the prospects for the next uh, the next giant season or something like that <laughs> when 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 we look at the the DSCC and like the misses and their and the wins how much of that can be related to to Cortez Masto again first first of all let's also say it's very early in the process so we some candidates who are expected to do well may not do well and some candidates who weren't expected to do well may may do great and so uh but this is a kind of a shared thing between Senator Schumer and Sen- and Senator Cortez Masto they both uh do recruitment and they and they uh she does more fundraising than he he does it's a it's it's a partnership if you will okay so moving over to our to our other senator, uh, Senator Jackie Rosen, you know, have you gotten a sense in D.C. how she's doing so far? You know, I know it's a little bit early, but have you have you heard any murmurings or anything about how Rosen's doing? Yeah, Senator Rosen, uh, she seems to have picked up where she left off in the House, where she kind of uh, was a member of the the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is this bipartisan caucus which tries to find solutions where both Republicans and Democrats can have common ground and they can they can move legislation. So she's taken that that uh, idea and moved uh, and and in the Senate she's trying to be very bipartisan. She has this uh, this philosophy of of you know fighting where she she must and and but working with Republicans where she can. And so uh, recently been named uh, in in certain studies as a very a very bipartisan senator among the top five or six. So she's and to to that point she's got a really good chance of getting a bill passed uh, in the Senate and it could become a law this year. And that's a big deal because uh, only two Senate freshmen have, so far, have had bills that they've introduced become law, and uh, it's 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 very hard to do from the, the minority as well because uh, the Senate, uh, you know, you it's very much a, a place of personal relationships, and that's really how you how you accomplish your goals. It, it's a very rules based place, but it's also you also need relationships to advance your goals, and so she uh, has this this idea of trying to find uh, Republican sponsors for anything she does. 
and uh, and and so we have in this bill that she has that she's introduced uh, several Republican sponsors. And it's a bill, uh, it's a STEM education bill that would create and expand uh, STEM education initiatives for young children, including uh, grants to increase the participation of girls in computer science. The, so the bill uh, was approved by the Senate Commerce Committee, which is she's a member of in May, and the House passed the bill in July. So if the Senate acts, it, it, it could become law. Uh, you know, and I was also going to mention that she's uh, also become a bit of a... Uh, She's used her seat. She sits on the Homeland Security uh, and Government Affairs, Governmental Affairs Committee to challenge the president's immigration policies. She's asked the DHS to uh, hire more pediatricians at, at, at facilities that detain children. She also wants them to have access to child welfare, welfare professionals who have uh, trauma training. And she also wants uh, NGOs, certain NGOs to have, uh, you know, surprise access to hold these uh facilities accountable in case that uh, just to check on them to, to make sure that they uh you know have uh, are receiving medical treatment the children and food and other uh type of care like that and she's been beating that drum for several weeks including uh three weeks ago she took she uh, gave a speech on the senate floor about that and so it's very interesting so she has while she's very bipartisan she also uh she's also chosen used the seat in, that she has on the homeland security committee to challenge the, the immigration proposals that the president's administration has put forward Lastly, you know, it's kind of the the elephant in the room, I guess. The 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 thing that's always brought up when when we're looking at Nevada, especially in D.C., but Yucca Mountain. What have we been hearing about Yucca Mountain? You know, we've been hearing that they want to open it or they don't want to open it. You know, it, there's always stuff. I, earlier this year, they had they were trucking in nuclear waste, and that was a big controversy. But what's been going on with that recently? Uh, well, the the thing we're looking at right now is uh, the appropriations bills because uh, there's always a, a a chance that money can be can be included in appropriations bills to restart the licensing process. The the delegation has been really good at at killing that effort uh, over in recent years, and um, so the Senate we they had a close call in the House before the break, uh, where they man- narrowly defeated an amendment to uh, fund Yucca. Uh, the Senate will be doing its bill to, that uh, governs the appropriate the appropriations for the de- Department of Energy, the Department of Energy Energy's budget that w- could come up as soon as September twelfth. So we'll be watching to see if there are any amendments on on in that bill to uh, to fund Yucca. They, I've talked to people who've said they don't think that that's the case, but you never know. Uh, Senator Feinstein says she didn't think so. She's on that committee. But also, uh, Senator Cortez Masto and Senator Rosen said they haven't heard of any amendment, but they, they said they're on their guard in case there is, and that they're, they've pledged basically to, to, to continue to, to keep that from having any money. Um, and we haven't heard much else on the, uh, on the plutonium front. We know that, uh, that, they, uh, that there was a ruling in, in the Ninth Circuit against Nevada, but who has been trying to get an injunction against the Department of Energy to ban them from, from sending any more plutonium. The court ruled that uh, basically that it's a moot point since, since the, the DOE has already said it doesn't plan to bring any more to Nevada. We'll be looking to see if there's any other things that fall, uh, that, what the next shoe to drop basically on that. But uh, again, the, the, all the action will be on appropriations when we get back. So, and, and again, when will we be back in session? So the, the, we'll be back uh, officially on September 9th, will be the first day back. However, uh, and this is a little uh, Nevada-related, uh, the, the, the House Judiciary Committee is coming back early. They're coming back on September 4th to take up gun legislation in the wake of the tragedies in El Paso and in Gilroy, California and in Dayton, Ohio. 
And one of the gun, one of the bills that they're taking up are is uh, a ban on uh, high capacity magazines by Dina Titus, and that's expected to pass the Judiciary Committee, and it could pass the House, but um, it's looking less likely that anything's going to happen on guns with the Senate uh, in Republican control, and likely the votes aren't there to do much. All right. Well, I think that that probably about wraps it up. Um, Humberto, thank you so much for your uh, your inaugural appearance on the podcast, and hopefully we'll hear a lot more from you soon. Thanks so much, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. If you like what you heard on today's episode, want to let us know how we can improve, or just feel like you need to complain about the news to someone, you can email me at joey at thenvindie.com. If you want to advertise with us on the podcast, you can email editors at thenvindie.com. And if you want to read any of the stories you heard on today's episode and a whole lot more, you can find them on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. If you want to support our expedition into the jungles of nonprofit journalism, you can find a button on the top of our site that says support our work. I want to thank Jackie and Humberto for being on this week, as well as the university radio station KUNV in Las Vegas for assisting us with recording every week. Sam, Dave, you guys are awesome. Our new theme song is by Reno Band, People With Bodies, and if you like it, you can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or on Spotify. I'm Joey Lovato. That's it for this week's episode. But don't you worry, because we'll be back with another episode of Indie Matters next week. Mm-hmm.